a brand new episode of Discast. I apologize for my absence as of late. Life became very hectic over the last couple months and things had to take a back seat, but now I hope to do better for my listeners and start releasing episodes much more frequently. Now this episode, uh, in case you hadn't already figured out by the title, is going to cover the Silver Age of Disney animated features. Now the Silver Age sits between the years 1950 and 1967, and includes the films Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, and The Jungle Book. So we're going to start with uh, the second Disney princess, Cinderella, uh, released in 1950, and the first film of the age, the stunningly visual and classically designed Cinderella. The film is based on the version done by Charles Perrault. There are countless other versions of the story throughout history and cultures, but none more famous than the version by the Brothers Grimm. However, contrary to popular belief, the Disney film isn't actually based on that version. This movie helped get Disney back on its feet after the huge financial losses because of the war and the lost revenue overseas. This film is such a classic. It's close enough to the golden age that you can still see some of the classic influences of its predecessors in terms of animation, which is of course stunning. I think this movie does a great job of showcasing a form of abuse that not many people understand, which is familial abuse. Sorry to get so dark right off the bat, but all Cinderella wants is to be treated well and go to the ball, but Lady Tremaine, her stepmother, can't stand the fact that someone who isn't her own daughters can be worth anything. It's truly despicable, and I think Lady Tremaine is one of the most compelling villains in the Disney canon because it's very much someone we all know, whether directly or indirectly. Now, of course, the songs. There are quite a few fun ones in this movie. You get A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, uh, sung by Cinderella, which is, I think, still very well known even to this day. But then you've also got the classic Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, sung by the Fairy Godmother. What's interesting is that the fairy godmother is only in one scene in this film, has one song, and yet has been such a staple within the Disney lore that I think it just goes to show how even the smallest of characters can not only make a huge impact, but can still be remembered well after first sightings. There are a couple fun tunes in this film, such as the opening song Cinderella, and of course the song sung by the mice as they're making Cinderella's dress, but I still think the first two I mentioned will continue to stand the test of time. Some interesting bits of trivia about this film are the edits that were made from the original story. This is the only one in which I'm going to compare the source material to the film because it's just a short fairy tale and it's much easier to do. There are many changes that were made for the Disney version, and there are so many variations to the story it's very difficult to keep it all clear, so I'll try and make them as simple as I can, and only relevant to the Disney Peralt version of the story. First off, Cinderella's father wasn't dead, and actually somewhat helped in the humiliation of Cinderella. Cinderella's mother while obviously being dead, was actually buried near the house in the forest, and a great tree grew where she was located. The fairy godmother was actually an original inclusion in the Peralt version and subsequently the Disney version. Cinderella didn't get her dress from the fairy godmother, but from what is to be believed is her dead mother's spirit. The ball was actually multiple nights, and each night Cinderella would pray to her mother's tree for something beautiful to wear, and each night she received a dress, each more beautiful than the last. The infamous slipper was never glass until the Peralt Disney version. It was other materials like gold and other fabrics. The curfew thing isn't in many interpretations of the story. Sometimes she tries to get home before her stepmother and sisters, and other times she's just plain tired. When the stepsisters are trying on the slipper, now this is where it gets gruesome, in order to make the slipper fit, one sister cuts off her toe, and the other cuts off her heel, but both are found out by the doves that live in Cinderella's mother's tree. 
A big thing that is never explained in the Disney version is what happens to Lady Tremaine and the sisters after Cinderella is discovered by the prince. In some versions, the stepmother and stepsisters have their eyes pecked out by crows as penance for mistreating Cinderella. That's personally my favorite because, quite frankly, they're bitches, and in some interpretations, they're left as ladies-in-waiting and are married off to lesser lords or members of the court. On the whole, I still think this movie holds up. It's beautiful and, quite frankly, a classic for a reason. Next up, Alice in Wonderland, released in 1951. Now, Alice is basically an hour-and-a-half-long fever dream. I greatly enjoy this movie. It's strange, beautiful, and all over the place. It does a good job of making you wonder whether Alice really was in Wonderland or if it was all just a dream. This isn't the first time Walt took us to Wonderland with Alice, of course. It was a sense of return because in Walt's early career as an animator, one of his first successes was his Alice shorts in which he uses a live actress portraying Alice and superimposes animation on top. It was revolutionary at the time and definitely one of the main reasons Walt achieved his early success. There are quite a few fun musical numbers in the film, uh, probably the most famous one being the Unbirthday song. But while that one is really quite good, I have to say my favorite is A Golden Afternoon, sung by the flowers when Alice has been shrunk down. The other songs are fun, but don't stand nearly as strong. The song Alice sings in the beginning is a cute tune talking about what the world she'd make would be like, which serves as a fun allusion to Wonderland itself. There's a song sung by Mr. Dodo about the nautical life. There's the fun poem by the Tweedles, The Walrus and the Carpenter, which is a surprisingly dark poem taken directly from the poetry of the books itself. And there's, of course, Painting the Roses Red, sung by the playing cards, who Alice comes across when she arrives at the Queen of Hearts' hedge maze. The nice thing about this movie is how much they included from the source material. I really enjoyed how the Cheshire Cat was orating the Jabberwocky poem, which is my personal favorite poem from the books. I highly recommend checking out the books Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. They're delightful and all kinds of crazy. Peter Pan, released in 1953. Here is another film that harkens back to Walt's early days, but this time to his childhood. One of the first exposures to theater when he was a child was seeing the stage production of Peter Pan in his hometown theater. This is a film he'd had in his back pocket for quite a while until he was able to finally bring the magic of Peter Pan to proverbial life through animation, which he felt did a much better job than stage or live action could at the time to really give a sense of magic and imagination through a child's eyes. This is also the first version to not only give us Peter Pan as a boy. In every other production before this, the character was done with a female actor. We also have the classic and integral character to the Disney legacy, Tinkerbell, who up until this point was not much more than just a ball of light in other depictions. Because of this film, Tink was able to achieve character and become the beloved little fairy that we all now know and love. This is also the film that was the inspiration for one of the most popular dark rides in Disneyland. Thank you, 40 plus minute queue wait. This movie has its good moments and some very questionable moments. I'll start off by saying that I greatly enjoy this movie and I think it's a fun adventure. Now saying that, I'm going to bring up the proverbial elephant on the screen. The portrayal of the indigenous people of Neverland is nothing short of racist. There is no denying that, but what I think is that the portrayal wasn't done with a negative mocking intent, it was just a product of the time. I actually spoke to an indigenous friend of mine who actually enjoys that part of the movie. He says he finds them so over the top that it's more parody than anything. His biggest qualm is that it's showing Plains natives as opposed to jungle natives, which he finds funny. Also the fact that Peter gains a headdress from the chief, which in that culture is a very big deal, and he doesn't believe Peter deserved it. There aren't many notable songs in this film, other than the classic You Can Fly, You Can Fly, You Can Fly. Other songs like What Makes the Red Man Red, and Following the Leader, and The Elegant Captain Hook, 
are the only other ones I think are of any note. Otherwise, the rest are quite forgettable, especially what makes the red man red. Because, yikes. That's not to say this movie isn't worth watching. Like I said, it's fun and a classic for a reason. Just watch it with a grain of salt and realize what was common in the mid-20th century when it came to depictions of other cultures. Personally, if they were to make a live-action version, they could easily remove the whole indigenous part of the movie, keep the rest of it scene by scene, and nothing would change. Instead of kidnapping Tiger Lily, kidnap Wendy or one of the other Lost Boys. Done. Lady and the Tramp, released in 1955. Now this movie, if you're a dog lover, it'll definitely resonate with you. This film starts with a beautiful quote by Josh Billings. In the whole history of the world, there is but one thing money cannot buy. To wit the wag of a dog's tail. This movie is heartwarming, charming, and just plain delightful. The character designs are so spot on to the breeds they're trying to portray that you can't not know what breed these dogs are. The one thing I noticed in this version that was changed in the live action, I'll do a proper comparison another time between the two, is that in the animated version, you don't actually see a lot of the humans from the waist up, unless they're being directly interacted with, which I thought was an interesting choice. The movie tries to keep you focused on the perspective of the dogs, and I do think it does a great job of this. So this was actually an original film of Disney's rather than an adaptation. It, much like the other three movies before it, started production before the war, but was ultimately shelved. Joe Grant, an animator, originally pitched the idea and was inspired by his relationship with his own dog. Originally, quite a few of the elements we see in the film were in that pitch, except for the inclusion of Tramp, which is partly why Walt shelved it. He didn't think a story of charm and loveliness was enough to make a proper story. Then he saw a short comic strip about a cynical dog living on the streets and decided to include that as a foil to Lady's Naivete. Ultimately, this movie became an interesting commentary on class and how those who live in different classes aren't really all that different. Eventually, Walt had Ward Green novelize uh, the new version of the film, but unfortunately no credit was given to Joe, and then an old wives' tale started being spread that the story was inspired by Walt gifting a puppy to his wife, which probably did happen at some point, but it's interesting how rumors like this start. Now, of course, there are a couple easy recognizable songs in this film, but none of them match up to Bella Notte. Originally, Walt didn't trust that this scene would portray falling in love well enough and almost scrapped the scene. Can you imagine where we'd be if that scene never happened? Seriously, I get choked up every time I hear it. It's such a beautiful song and makes me feel all warm inside with every listen. You also, of course, have the Siamese Cat song, which is, of course, problematic on its own. Also changed in the live-action version. And then the second best song in the movie, in my opinion, He's a Tramp, sung by Peggy Lee, who was not only the voice of Peg in the film, The Pomeranian, but also helped write the songs along with Sonny Burke. One of the sequences in this movie that instantly brought a tear to my eye was the dog pound scene. It's just so heart-wrenching for those of us who are not only dog lovers, but have such empathy towards shelter dogs and dogs in pounds. It's a hard sequence for me to get through. They make the poor puppy faces look so sad and they're crying and the music that's happening along with it all twist your heart so much you want to go out and adopt right away. But I digress. Now onto the last Disney princess film that Disney would ever produce until The Little Mermaid. Sleeping Beauty released in 1959. Now Sleeping Beauty was a marvel cinematically. It's absolutely stunning to look at and once again harkens back to those classic princess films we know and love from Disney. The color palette is one of the big things about this movie because all new colors were blended together and created for the backgrounds of the scene, which I feel elevates it to a degree. Many of the artists were inspired by classic medieval paintings and combined those inspirations with a lot of the animation techniques of the time, which brought a lot of those classic elements into the future. 
This version of the film was inspired by Tchaikovsky's ballet specifically, which would also influence a lot of the film's score, once again bringing that classical element into the 20th century. Production of this film started in 1951, and took as long as it did in order to achieve the stunning vision Walt had for the film. Because of the long time it took to make the film, it would cost Disney way more than any other film to date. Unfortunately, the film didn't resonate with audiences as much as its princess predecessors, and that made Sleeping Beauty the first financial failure in a decade. Funny thing about Sleeping Beauty, though, is that it came out four years after the grand opening of Disneyland, where the centerpiece is known as Sleeping Beauty's Castle. People didn't even know the reference until the release of the film, and that's some hella foresight right there. Song-wise, not a whole lot going on in this movie other than Once Upon a Dream, which is, of course, the song our titular character Aurora sings about her dream man. Funny thing about her name, it all depends on which region you take the story from. Aurora actually comes from the French version of this story, which, much like Cinderella, has different tellings. Briar Rose, which is the name given to the princess when she's taken away into hiding by the three fairies, is actually from the title of the Germanic version by the Brothers Grimm. For me, it's tough because while I enjoy this film and I think it's fucking stunning, it's one of the only instances in which I have very little interest in the main character. Aurora is just kind of present throughout the film, which is a shame because you'd think she'd have more to do since she's, you know, a Disney princess. But instead, it's all the other characters that I find more interesting. The three fairies, Flora, Fauna, and Merryweather, are fun and cute. Prince Philip even has more character. But none, I think, have been the standout star of this movie than Maleficent, the mistress of evil herself. Which also isn't much of a surprise as many of Disney's villains have become cultural icons in and of themselves, especially nowadays. Moving on to 101 Dalmatians, released in 1961. This is where a lot of changes within the studio would occur. Following the lack of financial success from Sleeping Beauty, Walt not only cut the budget for Dalmatians, but also decided to change the animation process altogether. Instead of taking the animator's pencil drawings to ink and paint to be outlined and then painted, they first went through a process called xerography, where the pencil sketches were copied onto the cells directly, then taken to ink and paint to be finished. The animators actually really loved this idea because it gave them the chance to look at the screen and see their own pencil drawings. It also would drastically change what we knew as the classic Disney-style animation. Not for the worse, I don't think, because I personally really enjoy the animation of 101 Dalmatians. It just changed it. It would also speed up the process quite a bit. This is also the first film where Walt had almost no input. Up until then, Walt had a hand in at least some part of the process, but around this time, not only did he have Disneyland and the weekly show to deal with, he also had a bunch of live-action films going on at the same time. Bill Peet was given the job of overseeing production of the film and brought Dodie Smith's 1956 story to the screen. A lot of this film feels very different to a standard Disney cartoon. For one, it's not much of a musical except for the Cruella de Vil song. The backgrounds had a different, more contemporary feel as well, and the character designs were changed to more reflect the time. Another thing they did which blew my mind when I found out is that some of the cars in the film were actually built out of 3D models and filmed going down fake roads. That film was then Xeroxed onto cells to be taken to ink and paint, and then finished. Walt actually didn't like it upon first screening, saying it lacked the traditional heart of a classic Disney film. Critics, however, felt different. They felt it was Disney's best since Snow White. Not only did the film cost half of what Sleeping Beauty did, but it was ultimately a huge financial success for Disney. I personally love this film, but then again, I'm a sucker for dogs. 
I think it's a heartwarming story, and the lack of songs don't actually deter me from enjoying it. If anything, I feel like having actual musical numbers in the film would feel out of place and just plain strange. The film's feel doesn't lend itself to big, bombastic musical numbers, and I'm totally okay with that. Once again, a fun puppy film for any dog lover to watch with their pet. Up next, The Sword in the Stone, released in 1963. This is the first film in the Silver Age to not have an actual song in the opening credits. It's instead an overture of the music of the film. This is also one of the only films where the storybook intro wasn't used for a princess movie. Obviously, this film is heavily inspired by the story of King Arthur, specifically the version written by Robert de Boron. His story entitled Merlin, which is supposed to be a telling of the Arthurian legend through the eyes of Merlin himself, is the version in which we see Arthur pull the sword from the stone to retrieve Excalibur, as opposed to the other versions in which Arthur is given his legendary sword by the Lady of the Lake, as told in Le Mort d'Arthur. This film has songs in it, but to me they're not very recognizable. You probably won't find them in any Disney compilation soundtracks. Merlin has a few fun tunes where he casts spells and sets them to music, and the evil witch Madame Mim has a fun song, but again, nothing too outstanding. Especially considering that the songs were written by the legendary songwriting duo of the Sherman Brothers. This is their first foray into Disney's employ, and Walt was so impressed with them that they'd stay in Disney's employ well into the 70s. The fun thing about this movie is that while it's a fun telling of the classic Arthur story, it's quite filled with morals, things like showcasing the importance of education. But the lackluster success of Sword in the Stone would ultimately bring Walt back into the studio to oversee production of our next and final film of the Silver Age, The Jungle Book, released in 1967. Finally, we have the film based on the Mowgli stories by Rudyard Kipling. Interesting thing about this one is that there isn't a song during the opening credits either, and actually, also one of the first times we see rolling scenes as opposed to the standard title cards that were the opening credits until this time. The Shimmer Brothers do their magic with the songs in this movie. The Bare Necessities and I Want to Be Like You are unforgettable and continue to be bobs in my opinion. Waltz had put Bill Pete in charge of the story, much like he did for the last two films, but the two butt heads over the tone of the films. Walt wasn't too happy about the dark nature of Bill's other projects, so he ultimately put his foot down on what he wanted, and Bill would leave the studio for good. He then put Larry Clemens in charge, but asked him not to go off the original material. Instead, he wanted some of Larry's own light-hearted story. Then one day, something strange happened. Walt came back to the studio after being away for some time getting his neck checked out, walked around the studio and told the animators how good of a job they were doing. This was strange because this wasn't something Walt did normally. Sure, he probably felt that way inside, but he never expressed it because he wanted his animators to continue working hard and never falter in the quality of their work. So for him to do this randomly was certainly strange. Things wouldn't become clear until a month later when Walt passed away in December of 1966. What Walt would never see was the huge success of this film. It would become the highest grossing animated film worldwide of all time in that period. The Silver Age has certainly given us some long-lasting films, with characters that are known to even the most casual of Disney fans. If you had to ask me to pick a favorite of this age, I wouldn't be able to. Each of the films are more charming than the last, and that's what I love to see. I love to watch progress happen, and studios take the chance to try new things. Whether it fails or not, what matters is that they tried. That's why we have 101 Dalmatians, for example. It's why we have the long-lasting Disney films we have at all. Artists wanting to make art. The one sad thing is that Walt never got to see how much the ending of this chapter would affect the studio. 
Well, stay tuned for my next series where I travel back in time and fully cover the Golden Age with the one that started it all, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, of, of course. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode, and I will catch you all next time. Hurry back. Hurry back.